There have been some strange goings on in the Something Who bunker tonight, and now I know who's been responsible. You all have. You've sabotaged this podcast. What are you talking about? You're the cause of this. You knocked me unconscious. Don't be ridiculous. We were all knocked out. A charade. You attacked me. Absolute nonsense. And when I was lying helpless on the floor, you recorded some material without me. You can check the recordings yourself. You won't find anything wrong with them. And why would we? For what reason? Blackmail. That's why. You want to force me to leave the podcast. Oh, don't be so stupid. I know it. I'm sure of it. How dare you? Do you realise that the podcast would have sunk without trace if Paul hadn't given a detailed breakdown of all the writing decisions and curiosities in each story? And what about Giles' discussion of symbolism and important cultural reference points? You ought to get down on your hands and knees and thank us, but gratitude's the last thing you'll ever have. Ah. What is it? I think I know what the problem is. Really? Well, it's only just over a fortnight since I uploaded the last episode of Something Who. Okay, but so what? Well, that's a pretty fast return, isn't it? I guess so. The podcast was spinning out of control on a collision course with disaster, but I flicked this switch and now everything's going to be totally fine. That'll be a first. Welcome to the podcast where we take something old, a Doctor Who story from the original series, compare it with something new, one from the new series, and add something borrowed, that sketch, to make Something Who. Hello, I'm Richard and we're back with Something Who podcast episode 70, where we discuss a couple of Doctor Who stories that question whether the TARDIS is sentient. Mm. First we'll look at first Doctor story, The Edge of Destruction, or inside the spaceship if you prefer from the very first season and after that we'll examine 11th doctor caper the doctor's wife from series six and with me to decide whether these stories offer signs of independent thought or seem more mechanistic we have writer raconteur and missing episodes expert paul hi paul (laughs) good evening Uh, can we can we still say happy new year or would be on that point do you think well i mean it's new since the last podcast and since we last spoke to each other. So, yes, go for it. Happy New Year. You can't say that now. It's the middle of January. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Next up, we've got science and astronomy writer Giles. Yes, Happy New Year. This is obviously the uh, budget-saving episode where we've, uh, <laughs> we've had to reduce the, reduce the cast. We're just doing it with the regulars. Oh God, yeah. We've had to amortise the cost of Simon over 13 episodes. as long as you don't pad it out with any flashbacks to the last series yeah yeah well look i mean i won't lie but we thought we'd ease our way into 2023 with a couple of fairly short stories uh it certainly minimized the research didn't it yes yes for which i was very thankful (laughs) because i hate doctor who (laughs) (laughs) yeah well look let's start off with the edge of destruction well, that's what the first episode's called anyway, by David Whittaker. And it's so good that it has two directors, uh, Richard Martin for the first episode and Frank Cox for the second. 
which was famously written in a hurry by the script editor, but not necessarily for the reasons that everyone seems to give in the um, accompanying documentary. Anyway, mm. original coming across this, who, who, who's got the, the earliest of it? I mean, it came out in the Target book, I suppose, in the, what, late 70s, early 80s? Oh, blimey, it was quite a well, mid to late one. It was when uh, Nigel Robinson, was char- when he was the editor of the range, he took it upon mm. himself to write a lot of the stories that were nobody else had wanted to write or right. even release. Um, he, he was mopping up all the rubbish, basically, and he did a, a <laughs> very, very good job in all of them. I seem to remember he, uh, well, the time meddler may not be included in that category, he, but he was, what else did he do? The Underwater Menace. Right. And I seem to remember he wrote at least one two-parter and, you know, and ex- took the opportunity to expand it to the full 144 pages. And um, he made a very good job of Edge of Destruction. If I'd had time, I would have reread it. But um, then I would have been even less pleased with the uh, original version. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I think my first encounter with it was, was Doctor Who Weekly, around about issue four or five, I mm. guess. It, would, it appeared up as, as one of their very early archive features. But I'm not sure that it's a plot that's very easy to summarise in that way, you know, without making it look a little bit... Well, I suppose what it is really, which is a little bit of a patchwork. Was it called Beyond the Sun? Yes, uh-huh. I think that's in right. The, I was going to because that's that. that's my yeah. recollection is is, yes. is the DW Weekly. Yeah, never archive. mind inside the spaceship. I remember when it mm. <laughs> had borrowed a title from another mysterious story that may or may not have been written by Malcolm Hulk. I, I yes. still to this day I can't remember how that all actually shakes down when you yes, get to the yeah. bottom of it. Then that, that got later tangled up in the whole infamous April Fool's joke didn't it yeah about them having found mm. clips of it but yeah it'll always be beyond the sun to me it's a fairly How come nobody's ri- why has nobody written the phoenix rises yet after all this time surely somebody you know <laughs> <laughs> a, a Frankly, big finish yeah. or or yeah even unofficially yeah, yes. mm. well there's a job for you paul mm. okay i'll yeah all right that is the list of ideas i've had during the podcast <laughs> that i pretend <laughs> i'm going to pitch to somebody yeah, 1988 the book came out so that oh been... right really late uh, that's, okay. that's, that's why I haven't read it it's very good you should read it a nice cover as well I'm just looking at it now mm. um, from the peak of Alistair Pearson I would say he's he's blending the face into the background as he generally did but it's um, mm. it's nicely done I didn't uh, I didn't know this I didn't really I didn't read about it in Doctor Who Weekly so this probably would have been the first time beyond the one paragraph explanation in the program guide and then i mm. saw it a couple of years later possibly before many of you i don't know when did it come yes. up in vhs well i don't know about that but oh, i didn't hell. see no, it and, research i didn't see it until the, <laughs> the, the uk gold i watched it about in about the late 90s that would be the first time i saw it i'm gonna to have to re- this have to be hit another of my occasional series of mentions of the fact that we had bsb british satellite broadcasting oh, well. so when they showed them all from the mm. beginning in 1990 yes. I was able to see a lot of very obscure season one stories mm. before they then stopped. It was brilliant while it lasted, which wasn't very long. Mm. Yeah, VHS wasn't until 2000, of all things. So, so oh, it's right. one of the wow. ones they left till, towards the end. I think I saw it either in a screening room or my friend Tim, who got got hold of copies that um, came off B-Sky B, etc., etc., or BSB, whatever they... Yeah. Mm. So I think I fully saw it around that sort of time. 
It was almost beaten out by the DVD because that was only, what, 2003 or something. It was. Yes, I definitely wouldn't have bought it on VHS being at the tail end where I famously stopped buying the videos because Mm. the DVDs had started. But I wouldn't have bought it anyway because it's the edge of destruction. (laughs) I think, I think this was the story. As well as starting to show Doctor Who from the start in a, in a regular slot on BSB, they then did the famous BSB uh, Doctor Who Weekend, mm. which was a wonderful thing. 48 hours of Doctor Who with lots of guests <laughs> being pressed into service to be interviewed by John Nathan Turner, and they re-showed all the stories they'd already, already shown that weekend add, mm. and a few more. So it was a rather peculiar mixture of nobody's favourites like this and the Keys of Marinus and so on, plus a few mm. really exciting things like you know, Web of Fear Part 1. Uh, anyway, mm. never mind all that. I think this is the story where um, late at night I think it re- finished off the Saturday evening and they showed the two episodes out of order. And <laughs> nobody noticed because, you know, everyone had gone home. That would have one, really helped to one make bloke it more sense of it. In the, mm. in the booth. And then they apologised for it the next day. Uh. <laughs> Didn't Did they show it for... again in the voice order? Oh, possibly, to, I can't. To make up for it. I used to, have the, <laughs> used to have the entire thing on a little pile of VHSs and I lent them to somebody and never saw them again. Uh, mm. uh, DVD was 2006, by the way, the beginning oh, right. set. Okay. So, uh, anyway. Yeah. Right. Mm. Late, later than I thought. Though. Yeah, so that's interesting. I mean, I, I think in that case, the, the gaps between the times I've seen it have been enough that each time I've come back to it, I've had to a greater hope than perhaps it's merited so i mean they're, they're, and they're, been appalled uh, all over again yeah okay. yeah the late so the late 90s with 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 uk gold then 2006 then if it if that's when it was for the dvd and then round about 2013 14 with my daughter and then this time so it's about every seven years mm-hmm. yeah i think I, I certainly won't watch it in the next seven years look there's a great story to be told about the tardis going wrong and trying to alert the doctor and companions but unfortunately this isn't it or at right. least, if it if it is it, then um, something's gone wrong, I guess, between the page and the screen. It's mm. it's both ahead of its time, and and very much of its time. So what's mm. good about it is ahead of its time. The idea that TARDIS is semi sentient. Well, that's mm. yeah. what a great idea. Yeah. But it kind of takes another fifty years to, <laughs> to, for that to be paid off, doesn't it? Properly, people yeah. pretty much ignore it, apart from the odd one liner here and then, and mm. um, eventually would have done nicely. So yeah, David Whitaker is ahead of his game there. But on the other hand, what drags it down, well, one of the things that drags it down is that it's also very of its time. With, I'm not going to say that springs and uh, the doctor pl- proudly saying a bulb will come on to tell him if there's a problem. You know, it's also, <laughs> um, it's got a big idea that's beyond science fiction. I mean, it's a, quite a big hmm. metaphysical sci-fi concept that this, this most advanced spaceship in the universe is not a... Uh, apart from all its, uh, on top of its, all of its other wonders that we're only just beginning to understand, it's also sentient, brilliant. But mm. then it's it's just a load of cogs and rivets because David Whitaker doesn't understand science. I suppose you'd be grateful <laughs> there's not any mercury this week or static. It's strange because the the idea of yeah, as you say, it's a it's a very high concept idea that you have a machine that's so so advanced that it's conscious. And it's trying to communicate with these people that are in, you know, that are inside it, and it's trying to trying to communicate this message as best as best as it can. And that is a that's a great concept. But yeah, the the bathos, if that's the term I'm looking for, of, of the actual 
mechanics of how it goes is um it's it's most peculiar it's not only underwhelming and incomprehensible but it's just if it if it's only problem was it didn't make a lot of sense logically mm. or technolo- technologically that we could forgive it but it's not good drama nothing about the things that happen in this story yeah as a result of the central concept is entertaining mm. so it doesn't work you know that's that's why it doesn't work on either level it's, and i wish i i don't know i wish i could ask mr whitaker what he was thinking where he started what what the angle was did he start writing and then come up with a just you know start it, it reads to me like he started writing loads of spooky gibberish and piling mm. up non mm. um things yes. that he hoped would be diverting and then eventually realized he had to explain it it feels mm. like that but it, I don't think they're writing that quickly that he would have need, that that would have needed to be the case. I think he genuinely thought it was a brilliant idea and this was the best way to to tell it. Unfortunately, mm. it seems like a, a sort of a, a unhappy fusion of improvisation <laughs> and nineteen seventies um, three two one dusty bin clues. You know where <laughs> they sort of you know they they they're sort of trying to explain at the end of how it all comes together. Yeah. And they're all getting very excited about it, but but none of it's making an awful lot of sense. Oh, those poor actors! When you say improvisation, do you mean it feels like the actors are improvising it? Because that's well, at, the, at the start, at times it does. Yes, yeah. I think. Oh, that's. I've, I mean, that's what I thought. It doesn't feel fundamentally, and this is unforgivable. It doesn't feel like it's been written by a real professional scriptwriter, or even yeah. an un, even an unprofessional scriptwriter. It feels like an improvisation by a group of mm. rather overwrought actors who all, yes. all think they're preparing something very profound for the Edinburgh Festival or something. <laughs> well, this is, according to the production notes, unless I'm misremembering this, they did say that the actors, the, the cast, at least on episode one, they got together and they were they were paying it down during rehearsals and, and removing as much dialogue as they could oh. and trying to make it Pinteresque. The dreaded word Pinteresque ah. crossed mm. the... Um, Cross, cross the cross the screen on the captions. I can see why they would have wanted to do anything to add a sheen of respectability or something mm. artistic to it, but it it didn't help, did it? I think it probably made it worse. I, I it's difficult to know. Yeah. I haven't without seeing a version which is mm. a bit more nuts and bolts and perhaps maybe a bit tighter logically. Without seeing that version, I don't know whether I'd have preferred it to this. Mm. Frankly, I I think it's unlikely. There's not much. I like less than this. What we're given, mm. no matter whose fault it is. Yeah, it's it's not so much Pinteresque as sort of pinteresque. You know, it sort of feels like they've they've, they've maybe had a couple of pints <laughs> <laughs> come up with with you know something that everyone's got very excited about, and then it hasn't quite panned out in the. Um... I mean, it is all very juvenile, isn't it? This obsession with scissors. It is like you've got a load of. Mm sixth form actors or some in a room with a load of props and they all grab it and you know when you get a certain yeah. type of amateur actor or not necessarily amateur but a certain type of actor in a room and getting to improvise lovely they meet lovely cow with a scissor acting there they, yeah. go to vi- <laughs> they go to violence don't they and shouting and, mm. and hysteric- yeah. hysterical argument I mean yeah. my least favourite thing from early Doctor Who is hysterical Susan which we've mm. had to put up quite and more than enough with in the first two stories, and here that's almost all we get. And then it spreads. Then we get hysterical Barbara and yeah, mm. which is I mean that's the worst part of it actually because I mean generally Jacqueline Hill seems quite sensible, but but in this one it it all just goes a bit. Well, I, I mean to be fair, she's better in episode two, but in episode one it just goes a bit weird 
for about fifteen minutes, doesn't it? Everyone's just screaming, screaming at clocks. Well, yes, apart from apart from um, Ian, who's sort of chuckling away and appears <laughs> to think he's yeah, I'm not quite, he gets some I'm some not quite sure faces. what. Yes, yeah. He's the worst at the beginning. He's the one who comes off worse for the first ten minutes because he's mm. doing sinister acting, which nobody else is. So. Oh, is he meant to be sinister? I think so. He's, right. Okay. I don't think it's in the script, so I think he's decided that that's the way to play it. But as mm. of yet, nobody else has got that mm. memo. And then when he stopped, when he stops, he hands a baton to hysterical Caroline Ford. Mm. No, we, yeah. watch it again. I'm sure that's what he's up to. Mm. He's playing everything in a slightly weird way. Mm. Oh yeah, you're right. There is weird acting too, isn't there? It's weird. Yes. It's weird, but I I found it more funny, funny ha ha than funny peculiar. I don't know, but not particularly what? funny ha ha. Almost yeah. What's the line? Even <laughs> and then yeah, almost the complete opposite when he uh, is it. Barbara suggests that something may have got in to the yes. TARDIS, and he says, "What do you mean, like a <laughs> like an animal or a man?" And he. <laughs> <laughs> I got the feeling that on paper it was supposed to, he was supposed to be genuinely unnerved by the suggestion, but he decided mm. to play it as if he thought it was ludicrous, mm. and then overplays that completely as well. Mm. It's often difficult to tell, I think, mm. at the time and in in hindsight, whether at any given moment characters are in possession of their faculties or not. Are they mm. acting out of character because they've been possessed this moment or, or lost their minds, or are they just hysterical? And it's yeah. I don't know how much rehearsal they did. You think? It just feels to me like they haven't still quite settled on any on a mm. decision for any given moment. Because that first ten fifteen minutes, it feels like everyone is out of character, and then, yes, and then after, and then suddenly there's a I think there's a recording break roughly, and then, and then everything snaps back into okay. Suddenly they're all, yeah, they're all having much more grounded conversations about the situation, yeah. and that they they all at least appear to know who each other is. Mm. And you know, and you've got the you know the whole thing of them not recognising each other at the start. Oh, that's true. Yes. So you seem to you start off that's, with that. Yeah, have they lost their memories? He's just. If you look and back then, at everything that happens, mm. one, in light of the explanation at the end that the TARDIS is trying to warn them, there's mm. still quite a lot of stuff that goes on that isn't explained. Why does the TARDIS make them all forget each other, or is it that it knocks them unconscious and that that's a side effect of being knocked unconscious? But I still don't think we get a, a good enough explanation of why it decides mm. to knock them out. And create a deep gash in the doctor's forehead. I mean, I, I guess. I mean, going back to the the actors and and the method. I mean, it, to me, it's it's not so far removed from you know what we talk about in season seventeen. You know where, you know the the wilder excesses of the nightmare of Eden or the horns of Naimon. You know, it, you know, it feels like they've they're they're having a bit of fun. I mean, you, you, if you look at the um, on the DVD, the the documentary that comes with it, you get. William Russell and Caroline Ford, they're talking with a bit of relish about getting the chance to act. And, mm. and, and there's, there's definitely a, a set of inverted commas around act when they <laughs> say it. But, I mean, actually, they get the chance to act every week. It's only this time they go utterly mad. And, uh, <laughs> and, and you know, the results are, are, are a little embarrassing. It is. It is a little mm. embarrassing. Particularly Susan. Should yeah. we... And the, the genesis of this story, I mean, let's, yeah, I know, just for our, the famous, the legends, and the the one that all have found and believed for decades, mm -hmm. I think, probably because we all picked it up from those early issues of Doctor Who Weekly, mm. Masterpiece Written in Crisis, or some, some similar thing is ringing a bell from some recollection of it, which probably 
probably Jeremy Bentham of this parish um, was possibly responsible for that particular version of it. So the legend which then everyone on the behind the scenes documentary has presumably been told this so many times yes. at conventions <laughs> over the decades since that they've absorbed this and that is the version that they believe, including why it's the same, strangely yes. enough, who's taking the blame for, oh, I was hopeless and we were all running behind <laughs> and so so they needed to insert this thing at the last minute into, yeah, so supposedly the version is that Marco was running behind and and they needed to put in a filler, the sets weren't ready and and so, yeah, they David Whittaker hammered this out over, over a long weekend, over a hot tub of and coffee, really. But the reality of it, and the, this is where I've, I'm hoping someone else might have also read up and maybe read a bit further than I did, because, so my understanding of it is the reality of it is this was commissioned because they needed to have a block of 13 that ended yeah. on a, ended on the conclusion of a story, mm-hmm. because that was the only commission that they, that was the initial commission. Mm. And although they'd already commissioned so this is what I can't figure out: is where did the where did there not being a war go away, and that there being a war come along? <laughs> to quote Baldwin, um, no, where did because so why did it have to be written in a rush at that point? Because they they commissioned Mark, they commissioned Marco, they commissioned the Daleks. Or okay, I guess they commissioned Masters of Luxor at some point, but there was they knew there was going to be a two episode gap, did they not? So I think that the reason um, I can only see the reason the reason they invented this anecdote about it being written at the last at the absolute last minute to fill mm. a gap an unplanned gap is because when you look at what they produced you can't imagine that they would have done it deliberately or with any more <laughs> on, in a decent mm. amount of time mm. but and it is rather boring the truth is rather boring and that's the last thing I remember reading that it, as you say it's a block of 13 yeah. um, mm. But, but I, I just can't work out why they then had to, why they still had the situation where, where Whitaker had to, had to write it under pressure and and was the only person who could write it, which was obviously even at the time, looked down upon, you know, sneered at as don't write for your own thing if you're the story editor, well, uh, because I mean, if they if they commissioned two up front, you know, two on either side, you know, as soon as they commissioned the Daleks, they must have known. Well, hang on, we're going to have two. Yeah. We needed two parts straight after that before we go commissioning this Marco Polo nonsense. What's very believable is that it's that they're trying to cut costs. Mm. So possibly commis- getting Whitaker to write it means that it's less costly than going outside ah, to, to, to another writer. I don't. I don't know. I mean, it depends mm. what what they paid him for it. And there, but then certainly, you know, the reduced cast certainly is less costly. The Usually, of the existing sets is less. So, so I mean, everything about it looks like they're they're trying to fit in the extra two episodes without splurging out very much money. And I suppose, I mean, although they they have already commissioned the scripts and they and they are building sets for Marco Polo, perhaps there's still the opportunity for them to cancel before the recording happens if they mm. if they're mad keen on this 13 episodes and that's it without running to the cost of then having to pay the actors for the for the following one so i so i don't know i mean it it's just about plausible i suppose that, that they, they could have decided to mm. to up um, at the end of the 13 i suppose it's an unforgiving it's an unforgiving brief to give to a a writer from outside the fold 
to have to write to have to write a two part of it. To, yeah, if you've got the parameters that it's a two part and it's also got to save a whole load of money because because the props department has said no, you've got to write off the TARDIS costs over over those thirteen episodes rather than the fifty two they'd sort of budgeted for or whatever. If you say okay, it's got to be a bottle episode just with the regulars, just with the one set and so on. Do you think the idea of a bottle episode, whether it was called that or not, was a thing in television at that point? I mean, TV is even more long-running. Even ordinary programmes are much more long-running and uh, mm. like soaps than they are now. So you'd have, think, you'd have thought that would be something that they would have come across already in the TV industry. Mm. And yet, on the other hand, because a lot of TV was more theatrical, and you'd mm. think that most scriptwriters were used to the idea of falling back on character stuff mm. when you haven't got anything else, any time, money, or... Mm. <laughs> Or, or sets. And what, what I find most baffling about it, and you, you would think that, again, that's why you would give it to the script editor. You can't yeah. do anything new, you can't move anything on. All he's got mm. is, the, is the existing characters. And so you think he's the ideal person to tell us some more about them, to consolidate mm, yes. what we've seen in the first 11 episodes, yeah. wrap it up with a nice neat bow. In some senses, it does that. But on the other hand, it also is a complete and utter waste of time because it's... As well, I don't think it tells us anything new about these characters. It muddles mm. and confuses some of the things we already know mm. and in some ways contradicts things we've seen. It's a step backwards for the Doctor because we've seen him start to mellow yeah. twice. I mean, we get the Cave of Skulls discussions, you know, where they all yeah. air their dirty laundry in, in the first story. And then we get the same scene in the prison in the Dalek City mm. where he apologises to Barbara. So by the end of that story... I don't think we really needed to go through it a third time. <laughs> and they were proper genuine. They were very clear, dramatic situations that brought out, mm. that forced the four of them to bond in those first two stories. Well, here we've got something completely contrived and ludicrous where we never quite know who's... <laughs> it's a bit like the way Cullen Baker was confused in Mind Wolf because he didn't... Nobody seemed to know when the doc, which bits were real and which mm. bits weren't. I mean, they're all sort of acting like they don't know when they're possessed and when they're not mm -hmm. and so it just confuses things it's also weird i mean it's also very bad television it, the doctor doesn't come across well i was reminded of my favorite comment sydney newman having watched the pilot episode old man not funny enough <laughs> the doctor was too stern and uh, unpleasant in the pilot episode what on earth would he think of this when he's mm. threatened to chuck them out into space i mean maybe he'd moved on and wasn't reading every script thoroughly or maybe the but you wouldn't have thought he'd have been very impressed with this. Yeah. The strange thing is, and again, this is another thing that they, they all trot out on the Make Your Documentary. They all say, oh, well, because it was a because of the constraints and so on. We thought, well, let's do a character piece and explore the characters. Mm. And yet that's... And, you know, the idea in principle of doing that, if, if you've got these constraints and let's do a, let's do a character piece, and yet, and yet it spends half the time making the characters completely unlike the characters we've come to know over the past 11 weeks and just doing all this weird stuff with them so david witter is not an incompetent writer so oh, if no. he wanted to write a character piece he would have done it or put them in a situation where they could be themselves mm. it's not the last time he writes a bottle episode is it there's one at the beginning of uh, wheel in space with just the doctor and jamie where the tardis mm. are doing peculiar things yeah well they're they're perfectly in character in that he no i don't think he was trying to write a character piece he was trying to write a bit of psychological, mm. avant-garde, theatre of the absurd, mm. horror, for some reason. 
<laughs> at this state, early stage of the program. <laughs> well, forwards, backwards, sideways. Um, was this one of their sideways stories? Mm. I know they, they they really wanted to do their minuscules episode, didn't they, at, at this stage? But mm. they couldn't work it out. So instead we have a sideways a trip into a sideways universe where mm. nothing makes sense. <laughs> but continues not to make sense. And I think that's the thing about the the first episode. I mean, there's a, and in some ways there's nothing. Uh, well, no, and it is it is weird. It's it's divorced from the others, but it's in the fine tradition of, of the first episode of Hartnell, where, where everything's a bit weird. Yeah. And you're trying to thrashing around, trying to work out what's going on. Only that's extended to the to the lead characters because of the scenario and. And we don't get a second episode that makes all that much more sense of it. You know, it doesn't settle down into a. Mm. And the second episode is seems better to me. Yeah, I, 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 I breathe a sigh of relief, possibly just of the superior quality of the video recording. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I wonder why that is. Yeah, it's it's odd that that the de- that the debut director does a seems to do a better job. Oh, and I mean, it's the, interesting. the actual direction, yes, yeah. Mm. Yes, but I mean, the curious thing is is that in the making of, that there's all this talk about oh, oh, oh the the shadows in the first episode, but I mean, I can't see any shadows at all. I, I don't know whether if it's to do with the fact that the DVD has, uh, you know, the, the processing to, to, to make the picture look sharper has, mm. has somehow removed something that people could see in the old um, film copies, but f- to me, it, it seems quite bright most of the time. Mm. I mean, if, if, if anything, it's more shadowy in the second half. Yeah, there's a very good bit with shadows right at the end, isn't there, of the second yes, episode, indeed. where, where, where Hartnell is for no particular reason bathed yes. in light among in the darkness. The first episode is just flat, like everything else Richard mm. uh, Martin ever did. Yeah. But at least it seems marginally less incompetent. But he's yeah. got a big, one big open set, so even he can't. Yes. <laughs> mm. Well, like it, well he, he starts at the start of the episode. It's Leisure Hive esque. There's a pan right round to the console room, which takes you know very nearly as long as the Leisure Hive to get <laughs> from one end to the other. And then Barbara gets up in her thal trousers and starts talking. But yeah, no, it, I, I thought. Well, I mean, it's it's not especially stylistic, but it's certainly a, it's certainly a thing. Hmm. And then is the melted clock in the first episode? Yes. Because they bollocks that up twice. I mean, you, you can't <laughs> see what's happened. No. Uh, well, three times if you include the fact that Barbara unnecessarily becomes hysterical at the side of a melted clock. But I mean, the, yeah. because there's such a Baroque design, you can't see what's happened, that the numbers yes. have melted. And then Ian cuts to, his wa- he cuts to Ian's watch, but that's out of focus because yeah. the camera isn't quite in the right place. So mm. that's completely and utterly bungled. Yeah. But at least it's redeemed by the fantastic explanation an episode later. <laughs> we had time taken away from us and then given back to us because we're running out of time. Mm. I'll have what she had. I mean, let's face it also, I mean, most of the monitors at that stage were, what, about 12 inches and very fuzzy. So the chance of anyone being able to see anything on that is pretty minimal anyway. Well, what do we like about it? Those beds. They're quite... Yeah. I like the very strange stage. Yeah, they look like good for your back. Um, mm. Very ergonomic. <laughs> they can't yeah. be specially made, can they? No doubt somebody has discovered where they came from. Ah, but yes. we haven't read it. Where's the food machine? Looks a bit. Where's that chairs of Doctor Who website? Does it does it extend <laughs> you know, to beds? You know it exists. I... Does it extend to beds of Doctor Who? I tell you what I like about this. What I like about this is that somebody watches it 
looks at Carol Ann Ford and says, yeah, what we don't need in this series is any more alien acting. <laughs> <laughs> Let, let's get her to do ordinary 1960s girl. That'll be great. Because, you know, what we get from here on in, I mean, it may not be very exciting for Carol Ann Ford, but it does at least, you know, it's less embarrassing. <laughs> mm, true. Well, until she gets a, until she gets a migraine in Reign of Terror, or whatever goes on there, yeah, and decides that yeah, having a <laughs> having a head chopped off—that's the cure for a headache. <laughs> <laughs> rather than a rather than an attempt to escape. Yes. <laughs> okay, and then other good moments. I mean, there's there's, a, there's, a, there's some quieter moments towards the end of the first episode where the Doctor and Ian are chatting, and then particularly, I suppose, the Doctor's monologue and then his discussion with Barbara at the end of the second episode. I mean, both of those are nice moments. I mean, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but at least you, you sort of feel like there's there's something a little bit more useful and important happening in those exchanges. Hmm. Hmm. It's very badly written dialogue, mostly, apart from the odd little moment. The bits, the handful of bits when they are in character, they're good. But all the stuff where they're out of character and the stuff related to the dilemma they're in, yeah, the way it's ex- the way it's presented to us and the way it's explained explained away is all rubbish. Very, very poor. Mm. <laughs> There's no cause. It's an endless sequence of people saying things with no cause, real cause and effect, but reacting to each other as if they're following on, as if they've just been inspired by yes. what the last character said. Yes, of course. Because, and then they say something that makes no sense, and then another, then yeah. another person picks up the thread, and that just goes on and on and on. He maybe did write it in a weekend, which is which is just like improvisation, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That's why. Mm. I, yes, I mean, I wasn't being I wasn't being unnecessarily sarcastic when I said mm. that's how it feels. It doesn't feel like it's had a second draft, but I am. I don't understand how any professional writer could write something that has this little flow to it as a first mm. draft, unless yeah. you wrote it. You'd have to write it faster than it takes to watch. <laughs> if, you, if you took less than twenty-five, any more than twenty-five minutes to write one of these episodes, then you would, your brain would have time to think through the connection from one line <laughs> to the next, and it clearly hasn't. It's just absolutely baffling. Anyway, I definitely saw references to him doing doing second drafts, at least wow. on the second episode. So, or V drafts. So, the music. I like the music. Uh, we get it in the uh, again in the moon base. It's that bloody bit from the moon base, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking, where have I heard this from? Hmm. And, uh, yeah. Giles, do you think there's any reason why they don't use nice, proper space photography? Oh, hang on. No. <laughs> 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 I suppose I suppose you wouldn't have, in that era, you wouldn't have had anything better than just a... No. Well, it's a bit like the Clangers. They're just guessing, aren't they? Yeah, hmm. kind of. When they, when they keep saying, that's not really outside, that's just a photograph. Hmm. Yes. Which is true a couple of times, but then we we devolve, don't we, to sort of il- children's storybook illustrations. Hmm. And that's the thing. I mean, people were capable of doing decent space art at the time, mm. and being a bit of a, you know, the Chesley Bonastells of this world were were hammering out stuff that looked amazing. And you look at the start of um, a matter of life and death, for instance, that amazing first thirty seconds or so. I mean, it's an amazing film anyway, but the. But the first bit with the with the whole, I'm not sure who does the voiceover for the start of it, but um, it should, it sounds like it's it's sort of Oliver Postgate. I'm sure they were um inspired right. when they came to do the clangers because there's the whole panning sequence about um 
this is the universe big, isn't it? Mm. Pans over glorious starry vistas and then uh, zooms in on Earth in David Niven. The planet Quinnis of the fourth universe. Ah, yeah? Yes, yeah. yeah. Let's go there. Um, That'll be more exciting. There I point out the Big Finish have done that. Ah, uh, right. they? Quite right, a long okay. time ago now. Mark Platt wrote it. Yeah, I okay. Think, I think for a long time they nobody's allowed to write any stories in the Doctor universe set before Unearthly Child. That rings a bell. And at some mm. point that must have been relaxed because he... Uh, now, where did it fit in? Did they do a run of stories set before and that was one of them? Anyway, I can't remember. But, you mm. know, it was by Mark Platt, so of course it was good. Mm. I'm going to quickly check that it was Mark Platt. <laughs> it's, um, it, these days it's very de rigueur to, to go before the unearthly child, but, um, but yeah, no, it's nice to make a reference and to think that um, there's stuff that's happening before we see them. Mm. Even if it's unclear precisely what that is. I mean, why, what, I mean, why they do a bit of travelling and then they settle down for quite a long time and on Earth long enough for her to go to school and then they're off doing travelling again. Mm. But, you know, maybe they're just, you know, wintering or something. Oh, because Susan is such a wuss that she screams like crazy at anything. Anything slightly out of the ordinary they run into, so 1960s London is the best they can do. Yes. I seem to remember when we did an Earthly Child commenting on the fact that um, Susan says about her, I like walking back, walking home in the fog. Yes. <laughs> It's so dark and mysterious, and I think this is, <laughs> this is a side of Susan's personality. <laughs> a layer of bravery we never get to see, see before. <laughs> she actually likes this sort of thing. After that, it's all sort of, ah, fog! <laughs> fog, exactly. Mm. Grandfather. A couple of things that occurred to me. I'd have to push myself back through it again. There were a couple of moments where I think someone, I think the production notes mentioned the poltergeist aspect of it and I thought oh maybe there's something you could get your teeth into there but it doesn't go down that route Mm. really but the whole thing of you know Susan being the most affected by it and again there's a there's a um yeah there's a more effective tale you could probably tell whether it really is something that gets into the TARDIS or well yeah I mean that's what I was thinking from the moment they brought that up Mm. and knowing that that isn't where it goes yeah that was the story you wanted to be watching yeah, I mean, this should be better than that because this has a twist. Mm. This this says this raises the spectre of it being a boogeyman has broken mm. in and is stalking you. But actually, we've got we've done something much cleverer than that. Mm. In a, in a sense, it's quite like a new series episode where they they promise you something, they promise you vampires and give you space fish. <laughs> it's um, it's, it's trying to be. You know, it's clever. No, it's much don't. better than what you thought we were going to give you. <laughs> mm. But really, 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 this is the one time when you re- really would rather have that. Mm. And if it's, if you want it to be psychological horror, then if something gets inside the characters' heads in turn, then there are two things you can do with that. You can have the way they behave oddly, being in character, reflecting who they are. And they all are all very distinct people, and you, or you, could, and or you could have the way they get out of it, the way they deal with the situation, reflecting who they are. Yes. I'm really not sure there's very much that separates them, separates Ian, the brave, brave science teacher, and Barbara, the plucky history teacher, mm. and whatever Susan's supposed to be. She's just but, hysterical Susan. Mm. It seems to suggest she defaults back to that state, rather than that this is something new for her. Mm. I, I suppose Barbara is most affronted by the 
unfairness of it. That that seems to be the thing that comes mm. out from her character. Mm. Ian is more sort of he, he, that doesn't strike him quite so much, but Barbara, she's absolutely is it, affronted. Is it supposed to be unfair when early in the second episode, Susan says, walks to the doctor's son and says, yes, Ian and Barbara, you have been behaving very oddly. And of course, <laughs> one, one thinks they have. Mm. But yeah. Even the doctor has the brass neck not to pick her up on that. <laughs> but I don't know whether, you see, the thing is, that might just be, as you say, say it, a sign that of the unfairness that we're supposed to really sympathise with Ian Barbara here, mm. or it could just. But it feels to me more like the, the writer has forgotten who's done what yes. so far. That's what it feels like, mm. rather than a, a character point. Anyway, I've got a suggestion. Go on. Then. Mm. I had one tiny little idea of how to improve it, and it, and it is okay. tiny, so um, it may not it may not do very much because I think mostly it's a bad idea and it shouldn't have been written. But because it's just a chain of incomprehensible things happening with a very weak payoff at the mm-hmm. end, the fast return switch thing, which is his wonderful big idea, doesn't really land because it's plucked out of thin air. Mm-hmm. So all you do is you open part one with the Doctor them discussing where they're going next. We want to go home. Okay, says the Doctor, I shall press home straight back to where we came i shall press this switch will get us there the fast return mm. switch you set that idea mm. up and you've instantly made it several times better in my opinion if anyone remembers that at the mm. end right check off fast return check- switch. absolutely <laughs> sorry <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's a pretty basic rule yeah if you're going to make pull something from up your ass at the end of a story that's fine but it's fine if you get to the end and you make something up and you write it down and stick with it. But then go back to the first episode and write it in. Just put a little margin note. Mm. <laughs> Seed it earlier on. It doesn't take very long. And mm. then it looks makes you look more competent and may even help the pill go down more easily. The bitter pill that is the edge of destruction. Yeah, told you it wasn't much, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the other thing to think is, I mean, you... He writes another two-part story, David Whitaker, in the next season, the, mm. the, the Rescue, which is also, I mean, it, uh, there's a couple more characters in it, but it, but you know, it, it's also relatively contained to a few sets and so on. And perhaps you might say it's not exactly the the most exciting story in the history of Doctor Who either, but at least there's there's kind of some sense to it. Yeah, mm. and it, yeah, and it, it achieves its goal of introducing the new char- the new companion. Mm. You, mm. you get to understand who she is in two episodes, so that you can then carry on from the next week and uh, and pre- pretend she's been there forever, which is obviously the point of it, so that you don't have to do big rewrites on subsequent stories, other than crossing out Susan and writing in Vicky <laughs> <laughs> or Tanny or whatever her name was, mm. crossing <laughs> out several names before you finally arrive at Vicky. <laughs> Yeah, one funny thing, yeah, because I'm talking about Barbara and Ian, and I feel like Ian doesn't exactly get much to do, it doesn't feel like, and they they pile like the character stuff onto it, such as it is, onto Barbara, mm-hmm. that she's the one that the Doctor has to make it up to at the end. So apparently the, the whole stuff about time being given back to them, time being taken away and time being given back, which Barbara figures out, apparently... Apparently that was swapped dialogue that they swapped out from Ian to Barbara, so Ian would have figured that out, which feels more like the science teacher's, that was the science teacher's bit, as it were, mm. and apparently they decided to swap it because it made, 
more Barbara's intuition. Well, that's that's a nice way of saying that it makes no logical or scientific mm. sense. So giving yeah. it to somebody who's supposed to be scientific might mm. look a bit odd. So you give it to somebody who's actually quite a woolly thinker. Then again, and, yes. Uh, yeah. And then call it women's intuition. Mm. So I'm... <laughs> It oh, might you be a intu- point for you, her. But you and your woman's intuition, Steve, yes. Um, uh, I'm a so, uh, fan of Paul, T- Paul Temple. Ian does get to throttle the Doctor, so, I mean, there is that. Oh, well, yeah, good point. Yeah. It, yep. He doesn't get... A, he gets a very fetching dressing gown, doesn't he? He doesn't yep. get to wear the, Nearly. the biz- bizarre robes of... Um, uh, of sleep, though, that, uh, that Susan and Barbara <laughs> both He nearly gives us a flash... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not that I was looking too closely, but uh... <laughs> uh, and it is only uh, three hundred and eighty-eight lines. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> We're in grave danger of talking about this story for longer than <laughs> it <Yes>. exists <laughs> on celluloid. Yeah. I guess in terms of things that I do. Appreciate it's it's interesting. It's a it's another glimpse of one of these things where it doesn't. It's like the the what might have been and things like that. The fact that there seems to be there's a vestige of that the telepathic link thing between the Doctor and Susan. Yeah. The stuff yeah stuff like that. Some of the stuff to do with how the TARDIS console operates appears to be. I know obviously that's stuff that you know is built on and will be. We'll be doubtless talking about that later, but but it's quite interesting from the notes that um, again it's all stuff I'm cribbing from production notes, but that apparently the original intention, Pachaki, Pachach, oh yeah, yeah, him uh-huh. him anyway, that fella, the guy who designed it, the console was going to rise up at the start of flight and rotate, but it wasn't going to go up and down. It was apparently that was the intention. Was it kind of? Came up and had, was a navigational instrument with stuff going on inside it, and then it sunk down, sunk down again when the TARDIS landed. But it wouldn't have um, done the old rise and fall thing inside, which is uh, intriguing. And the, yeah, the whole thing of the power source under the console mm. is obviously. Um, in terms of things I did like, absolutely liked about it. I, li- I like the one thing that's retrospective is I, I quite like the idea that the Doctor. The doctor gets affronted at the idea that the machine can, that the machine can think, <laughs> and the, the the idea that it's the the companions that plant, that first give him that idea, and that he sees it as just a machine, until they you know it's a retrospective fan thing, undoubtedly, but it's quite nice to see that the doctor thinks no, it's just a ship and you know just a, just a machine until, until the idea gets planted by them. Yes. I do like the way they handled the return to normality when the power comes on and yes. the hum starts up, the rising hum to you know to gradually eventually reach the the normal pitch. I do I do think that's very well handled, mm-hmm. quite effective. And the other thing, from a complete nerd point of view, rare example of Whitaker science getting it right. The whole the Doctor's whole soliloquy is over- overacted somewhat, though it is. It's strangely foreshadowing. Like the, the theory of collision of the creation, which actually wasn't something that was in the mainstream at the time. It was kind of you know the whole thing about how the solar system formed. Right. Kind oh. of came, kind of was formulated in the early seventies. This whole the whole model of like going from little you know little atoms and gradually clumping everything together in more and more bigger chunks. 
What does he? <laughs> oh, I wish I could remember exactly how he puts. So that's that tickled me slightly. That it's a that it's a, oh funny. That's fairly bang on the nail compared to theories that were around at the time. Better than the planet's being pulled out of the sun by a tidal by the tidal force of a passing comet or other things that were um going around at the. <laughs> no, maybe that's that's a bit earlier than that. Who's the world's in collision guy? Velikovsky was the crazy pseudoscience guy. Anyway, sorry. I'll belt up about that now. <laughs> Thank you. Hang on, I've just got to write something with a felt tip pen on my keyboard. Fast returns, switch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, it is, I think it's interesting to, to remember that best part of 60 years ago that knowledge was a little bit different. Hmm. Anything else that you, that anyone's got on this? Nope. I'm not going to say another word because I refuse to talk about a story for longer than a, than its own length. <laughs> One other thing, sorry. I'm just going yeah, go <laughs> I'm determined to talk about it for longer. No, um, no not at all. Well, I think in the other documentary thing. is longer than the story itself, isn't it? So <laughs> Sorry, again this is this is a site oh did Ian Levine make the made the documentary yeah, for the, the making of I think okay. it's an hour long unless that's the Genesis uh, Starlinks one. Maybe they both mm. are. Or uh, maybe yeah. I'm talking out my hat. Maybe I'm I only thinking... watched the... Or is it completely the opposite of what I just said? There is no documentary, but there is... Inf... No, hang on. No, there is, there is a big one on there. You I watched only watched it. the you short... I, w- right. I only watched the 30-minute one. Uh, and I think it's about 30 minutes that's just okay. on the making of this story. My for mistake. This. Dan, that's the Dan Hall era. He wouldn't have let him get away with mm. that much, would he? <laughs> but this actually relates to, more to the documentary than to what's... Uh, was shown, and again, it's just one of those things that it's it's funny in retrospect watching something that was made in about 2005-2006 and the fact that all the people they interviewed are willing to or the, the ones who opined about it, fans and actors, discuss and treat the idea that the Susan might not be the Doctor's actual granddaughter as like a viable theory at the time, and you think and that was that was a bit of a throwback because I thought, God, it's ages since I've heard anyone seriously, seriously apart, give that opinion these days. You know, we're so steeped in mm. seventeen years into the new series now. The idea that the Doctor had a family and so on is absolutely <laughs> just taken for granted. And the idea that there was a, there was a time where people said, "What well, is she really his granddaughter?" Mm. Okay, so do you want to plow on with the other one, or do you want to have a bit of a break and come back to it? Wouldn't mind quickly making a cup of tea. Yeah, okay. Back in a moment. See you in a moment. We've retained our original lineup. Oh no, we haven't. <laughs> <laughs> I just record. Just say, well, that's a pretty fast return, isn't it? Just in case the first one didn't work yeah. out, because it's that's, that's kind of. Are you going to put a trombone? going to put a trombone in there? <laughs> 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 nice, quite a nice joke. It made me laugh. Mm, yeah. Uh, <clears> oh god! <throat> Unlike the real thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay.